If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 9. Luke and chapter 9, we are going to be in verses 51 through 62. It'll be behind me on the screen as well in my translation for you to follow along there. Uh, we've been, I told you a couple months ago that Luke 9 is chock full of uh, important, incredible things, and that's why it's taken us eight weeks to get through. Um, and so we end chapter 9 today when we pick Luke back up uh, near the end of October or the beginning of November. We'll just pick up in chapter 10, all right? So I mentioned that we're doing another series next week because if you only bring your Luke Scripture Journal, next week, bring your whole Bible, all right? Because we will not be in Luke next week, but today we will be. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke and chapter 9, starting in verse 51. Holy Spirit says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. Over the course of 30 years of ministry, Nick Ripkin traveled to 72 countries and interviewed over 600 persecuted Christians. Out of all those he interviewed, there's one man that he says is the toughest man he ever met. This man would only agree to meet with Nick if it was in a non-public location, and if Nick agreed that he wouldn't see the man's face or learn his name. Nick agreed, and over the course of the next six hours, the man shared his story about how he came to faith in Christ. The man was at one time a soldier who took great joy in killing his enemies in the name of Allah. He believed every kill was an offering to his God. Nick asked him, how many people have you killed? And the man said, I lost count after 100. But one night, the man had a dream, and on his hands had spots of blood on them. And every night, he had this dream. And every night, the spots on his hands grew bigger and bigger until they covered his hands and arms. The dream was so vivid and disturbing that he dreaded falling asleep at night. But then he began to see the blood during the waking hours too and said that no amount of scrubbing or washing would get the blood off. Then one night the dream changed. He saw a man instead clothed in white with scarred head and scarred side and scarred feet. And the man said, I am Jesus the Messiah and I get the blood off if you'll just find me and believe in me. Well, he didn't know how to find Jesus, but he began to search and Eventually, he found a copy of Scripture. This is something that took him 
over a year to do. Took him even longer to understand what he was reading, and from time to time he would find people who could answer some of his questions. And finally, he said that he found Jesus and he gave his life to them. And then I got the blood off, he said. Jesus took the blood onto himself. Immediately, the dreams ended. There were no churches around, of course, so he kept studying the Bible for himself. He did everything the Holy Spirit told him to do. Eventually, he started to smuggle Bibles. Bible portions and other Christian materials from another country into his own where they were illegal. He tells of the struggles he went through, the beatings, the hardships, even from those that he used to serve as a soldier with. Well, Nick told the man how he was inspired by his story, thanked him for sharing it with him, but then Nick asked him this. He said, you've told me that you are married and that you have sons, that you have led your wife and children to Christ and that you have even baptized them. What I'm wondering is this, where do they fit into your ministry? You haven't talked about that. How do they help you? What is happening with your family? Nick asked. But just then the man leapt out of the darkness and suddenly he was standing face to face with him. And he grabbed Nick with his scarred hands and his fierce dark eyes bored laser into Nick's. And suffice to say, Nick was terrified. He remembered his body count, right? And the man shook him and the man asked, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can God ask it? He said, I have given him everything. My body has been broken. I've been jailed. I've been starved. I've been beaten. I've been left for dead. I've even been willing to die for Jesus. But you know what I fear? When I go to bed at night, what keeps me awake and what actually terrifies me is the thought that God might ask my wife and my children what I have already willingly given him. Then he asked again, how can he ask it? How can God ask that of my wife and my children? Now, I'm not going to tell you how Nick responded until later. Because I first want to ask you this. How would you answer that man? What would you say to to a man who has given so much for the cause of Christ and asked you, would Jesus require even my family? what would you say? Would Jesus really require that of him? Would he require that of you? Now, I wonder also, what went through your mind as you heard that story? What in your life would cause you to react the way that man did? And say, how could God ask this of me? Surely he wouldn't require that. And have we been made to think in the context of comfortable Western Christianity that Jesus really doesn't require much at all? Have we been told that following Jesus is really just about doing whatever we want as long as he's, you know, sprinkled in along the way? Have we been led to believe that being a Christian is really about just praying a prayer that will get us to heaven when we die, but changing our lives and priorities is mostly unnecessary? That Jesus is fine with marginal cultural Christianity that only has a vague attachment to him. That Jesus just wants us to accept him, but wouldn't ever require of us total abandonment and first place in our lives. Is that what we've been told? Is that what we've understood following Jesus? What we see in our text this morning is that what Jesus is calling for is total commitment to him. What we see is that he doesn't give the option of him occupying anything but a preeminent place if we are to be his followers. And so the questions we'll need to answer today 
are these. Is Jesus worth total surrender? And am I putting off following him as he calls me to because I put conditions on my following? The scene in Luke is one of the most important of the book because it it is the hinge for the whole thing. Here in verse 51, we see that Luke is signaling for us that the Galilean portion of Jesus' ministry is over. And now for the rest of the way, we will be following him to Jerusalem. Remember, this is divine imperative, right? Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face. You see that in verse 51? He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has, as he was prophesied in Isaiah 50, set his face like a flint to go. And why? It says, doesn't it? To be taken up. What does that mean? It encompasses all that he will do in Jerusalem. His lifting up on the cross to atone for the world's sin. His being lifted up out of death in his resurrection by the Holy Spirit and his lifting up in ascension to the right hand of the Father to be enthroned as the true king of all things. <clears throat> this taken up is referring to Jesus' exodus. That was the topic of conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is Jesus' purpose for coming and taking on flesh, to die in the place of rebels, to take the wrath of God that they deserve upon himself, to defeat sin and death, and by being raised bodily from among the dead and to take his rightful place at the helm of the universe. All of that was on purpose. All of that was the divine plan. All of that was for you, so that you can be brought near to God, and so that you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. But the key is that you must take the step into the kingdom of Christ. You must see all of this. See who Jesus is and what he will do in Jerusalem that he has set his face towards and who you are in relation to a holy God and you have to make a choice. Will you take the step into the kingdom or remain outside of it? Every person has to make that choice. See, not everyone is going to receive Jesus as true king, are they? How do the people of Samaria respond to Jesus? They reject him. They don't want him. Now, we know... Jesus has promised that he would be rejected by men. But this rejection, in particular, produces a reaction from James and John, doesn't it? They're called sons of thunder for a reason, right? They ask, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? Now, they aren't just making this up. They're drawing off of something that Elijah did in 2 Kings when he called fire down from heaven to consume people from Samaria, that Jesus declines this offer. (laughs) He rebukes them. We don't know what the content is, but he rebukes them and says, no. On one hand, you can't blame the sons of thunder for sticking up for Jesus' honor. On the other hand, Jesus is teaching them and us that immediate judgment is out of character with Jesus' current mission. Now is not the time for consuming judgment. Now is not the time to curse enemies and wish for their destruction. It is indeed the time to warn people of the wrath to come. But the wrath is just that, to come. It's not here yet. Now is the time of God's generous offer of grace and mercy for those who see their sins and turn to him. And the role of those in the kingdom is not to condemn the world, but to call the world to submit to its rightful king. But this does indeed remind us that Jesus' coming and being taken up on the cross and out of the grave and onto a throne requires a choice from all people right now. 
A choice must be made, and it will. Enter the kingdom or stay on the outside. You realize we're all born on the outside of the kingdom. We're outside of the kingdom because of the fall. But Jesus has come and he has brought the kingdom and he has graciously invites us to step into his kingdom and live an utterly new life right now. But we must take that step into his kingdom. The problem is there are a lot of people who have gone right up to the edge of the kingdom. And I've never taken a step into it. There are a lot of people who think the essence of being a Christian is to improve morally or to have a new set of doctrinal beliefs. Now, don't get me wrong. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you a different. And right doctrinal beliefs are eternally important, but they in themselves do not make one a Christian. What many don't understand is becoming a Christian is actually crossing totally into a new way of life. Let's illustrate it like this. I'm borrowing it from Tim Keller, but I'm adapting it, all right? In 2006, I received orders to be stationed in Anchorage, Alaska. Well, because I received my orders so late, Sila, Ariel, and I had to drive from Colorado to Alaska. Drive. In November, okay? We prepped, we packed, we drove up to Canada, and getting up to Canada did me no good if I only got to the border, right? I had to cross over. All of that work of packing and driving would do me no good if it just took me to the border and I stayed on the outside looking in. All of that improvement of my location would have done nothing at all if I didn't cross over because even for all the cost and time, if I stayed on the outside of the border, I was still 100% outside of Canada. I had to take a step to cross over. And once I did, I was in a different nation with different laws, different governance, different standards, different currency, and more. In stepping into this other nation, I had to submit myself to it because I crossed from one realm into the other. So many people have thought that being a Christian is just improving themselves, whether morally or ethically or politically or socially. They have advanced all the way up to the border, but they haven't actually taken a step into the kingdom of Christ and into the new realm because they haven't submitted themselves to the king. They've gone all that way, but they haven't taken that one single step and crossed over. Being close to the border still makes one 100% outside of it. And part of the reason why many people haven't crossed into the kingdom is because of what it actually entails. If I went up to the border of Canada that day and I said to the fellow there, look at all the way that I have traveled, what will that get me? You know what he'd say? Nothing. You have to cross the line. You have to cross over the line. Some people convinced that Christianity is the safe religion of their family heritage have traveled all the way to the border and said, look at all my improvement. Look how moral I am. Look at all my accomplishments and look at how I pray before meals and how I want prayer in schools and how I vote the right way and how I'm nice to my spouse and kids and how I'm respected and well thought of by my peers and how I'm not as bad as some other people. And they don't ever ask what will that get me? Because they assume all of that must have gotten them a place in eternity. They think they've earned it. But Jesus looks at that and says, but you haven't taken the step into the kingdom. You must surrender. See, in verses 57 and 62, we see three people at the border of the kingdom. Would they cross over? Jesus wants them to know. 
First, that to enter the kingdom that he rules over and to follow him, there will be a cost. You see, when you read 57, 62, Jesus pull, he pulls no bait and switch here. He tells them up front that following him means total commitment. He wants them to know that nothing must take first priority before him. That his kingdom is different than all the others and even different than what we'd expect. See, verse 57, the first man comes up to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. He, he, he goes up to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you and I'm willing to go wherever you go. This is like the ideal disciple. What does Jesus say? He says, all right, welcome in. Here's your swag bag. Let's go. No, he says, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What kind of response is that? What is Jesus saying? Essentially, he's describing to this man up front what he can expect on this journey to following Jesus. Jesus is someone who is headed to Jerusalem to be taken up on a cross. Jesus is someone who just went to a village in need of the gospel, and instead of seeing their need, they told him to leave. Jesus is someone whose living situation, don't you see, is worse than the beasts. He says, even birds have some place to stay. Even foxes can go back to their hole. All the creatures of the earth have a place to call home. But what? I don't. Are you thus willing to follow me if it means you don't have a house? Are you willing to follow me if it means you don't have possessions? Are you willing to follow me if it means you give up attachment to material things? Are you willing to follow me if it means being rejected? This is what he's asking him in this statement. Jesus wants to be sure that this man, do you remember the second soil in the parable of the soils in chapter 8? That responded with joy. Remember the ones who responded with joy, but then the hardships came and what happened? Do you remember? Fell away. He, he, Jesus wants to make sure this man isn't like Mr. Pliable from Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember him? Christian met Mr. Pliable on his journey. Mr. Pliable is excited, eager to get to the celestial city. But as they're journeying, Christian and Pliable both fall into a pit. They encounter trouble. And as they're in the pit, Mr. Pliable lashes out at Christian and says that this life is not what I thought it would be. And so he says, it's not worth the trouble. He climbs out. He heads home, abandons his pursuit of the celestial city. Jesus is trying to avoid such things by telling this man that he can expect trouble and rejection and loss of possessions. He must expect to live worse than a fox or a bird. In other words, not even a bed is guaranteed. Jesus is telling him that he must loosen his grip on material possessions and comfort if he is going to follow Jesus. And he's telling that to you too. Are you, friend, willing to lose your possessions and your comforts, your desires for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to lose your reputation and risk rejection because of Jesus? Let me ask it another way. Are you living your life as if this world is your permanent residence? Or are you living for another world? See, Jesus is telling this man and us that he must be willing to live like a homeless person in this world because that's what Jesus does. A follower of his must live as a stranger in this world 
because he, he lived as a stranger in this world. Does this mean, does this mean we go, all go, leave the day, sell our stuff, sleep on the street corner? He's not calling for that either. What he's calling for is our ceasing our strong attachment to our stuff and our willingness to part with it for the kingdom. Like, we look at the story, the most famous, rich young ruler, right? We look at this story, and Jesus tells the man, one thing you lack, sell all you have, give to the poor. And we go, well, Jesus was just talking about that one fella. Isn't that what we do with it? He's just talking to that guy, because that's his problem, not mine. He's not calling us to sell what we have and give it to the poor. And you know what? In some sense, that's true. But you know in another one? Maybe some are being called to that. And maybe our claims of, he's not saying that to me, are just blankets of reassurance that he doesn't mean for us to sacrifice our love for all our stuff. Maybe our defensiveness, because all of your hearts are defensive right now, as mine is, and explaining away hard passages like this, or our attempts to soften Jesus' words and demands as a sign that Jesus is hitting a nerve with us. Is it possible, can I ask this? Is it possible that you are too attached to your stuff? Do you think that's possible? Is it possible that too much of your life and passion and energy and anxiety is tied to things that moth and rust will destroy? Is that at least possible that you are living more for your comfort than you are for Christ? Is it possible you have made yourself at home in this world when you're supposed to be an alien and stranger passing through on your way to the true promised land? You know, this is a problem in the early church too. And it prompted church father Chrysostom to ask, why should the pagan world, this is what he asked, why should the pagan world accept Christ's gospel if Christ's own body, the church, lives as though this present world is its permanent residence? He said, when they see us building for ourselves fine houses and laying out gardens and baths and buying fields, they're not willing to believe that we're preparing for another sort of residence away from the city. Chrysostom says, we're supposed to look like pilgrims, but we often look like settlers, putting down permanent roots in the wrong location. That sounds like what crisis after here too, doesn't it? Again, and the reason I even have to say this must mean something. Jesus is not saying don't have possessions. The problem is too many of our possessions have us. When the Son of Man created the world, had no place to lay his head in this world, why are we, his followers, so devoted to our own comfort and ease and accumulation of stuff that will eventually be thrown in a dumpster or stolen or waste away? Friend, you don't have to be so devoted in accumulating stuff that which, that which you may lose if what you gain is the cosmic Christ. You don't have to fear losing your stuff in your home, don't you see? When Jesus is your home. Was the next guy in the story? 
is someone that Jesus calls, right? The first guy comes up to Jesus. Jesus calls this guy. He tells this guy, follow me. And the man says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. This is a downright reasonable request, isn't it? That's a reasonable request. This man's father has died. He has an obligation to go and bury him. That's fair. Plus, it's, it's his father. He wants to say goodbye. Truly, this is a good and right response. I think we could all sympathize with this. But what does Jesus say? Verse 60. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, what? Go and proclaim the kingdom. Okay, let's just be honest. This sounds rough. You with me? (laughs) This sounds rough, all right? The guy wants to bury his dad, but Jesus says... Let the dead bury their own dead. This is rough. James Edwards says, This pronouncement, like the others in 57 through 62, confronts the disciple inquirer with an existential choice that is focused exclusively on Jesus. A Jesus who does not apologize, does not apologize for or attempt to justify the high cost of discipleship. Truly, do Jesus' words here sound radical to you? You can speak, yes. It's, let's be honest, I'm not, I'm not setting you up, I promise, all right? You know why they sound radical? Because they are. And as radical as it would be if, if someone told you, imagine somebody told you, don't go to your parents' funeral. It would be even more so in this context. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that those who would follow him would thus belong to a new kingdom with different priorities than the priorities of this world. A kingdom where, listen, allegiance to one's family must yield to allegiance to Jesus. When Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying, let those who are spiritually dead, i.e., belong to the old age, this world, who are spiritually passing away, who are not in my kingdom, bury those who have already passed away. He's saying that those without kingdom priorities and are not involved in the mission of Christ can handle the man's father's burial. He's saying that the man is part of the new age. That Jesus brings, and thus he needs to leave the old world behind and step across the kingdom right now. Jesus is telling us that when he bids a man to follow him, as he did with this man, that nothing, not even family, can occupy first place. Is that not what he says? And this rubs against us perhaps more now than it did when Jesus first uttered these words, because more now than ever, the family is idolized. Isn't that fair? Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? The family should be a high priority in our lives, yes? Our spouse, our children, our grandchildren should, in fact, be one of our top devotions in life. The Bible commands our taking care of our family, in fact. But they aren't everything. Family isn't the most important thing. Boy, does that rub against our sensibilities. It rubs against mine. I wish Jesus didn't say this. if I'm being honest. But you know what? He did. Why? Because he knows even our best excuses. And this is, this excuse is a good one. (laughs) It's a reasonable one. Even our best excuses, even our reasonable excuses are not good enough to postpone discipleship and obedience. That's why Jesus rejects this excuse. If family is used as a reason to not give Jesus first place in your life, 
then they're being used as a shield to obedience rather than a means by which to obey. Don't you see? I'm going to say that again, okay? I need, we need to make sure we get that. If family is used as a reason to not give Jesus first place in your life, then they're being used as a shield to obedience rather than a means by which to obey. Isn't there a big difference? Some use their family and their busyness and their activities and their desires as a reason to not give more of themselves to Jesus. And Jesus says, this must not be so. Because then you're not honoring your family as you ought. Isn't this the irony of the whole thing? Your family is not honored when they are your God. When you place the weight of your hopes and your dreams and your meaning and value on them, they're not being honored. They're being made to carry the weight of divinity that they were not created to bear. If your family is everything, then when they inevitably disappoint or fail you, you'll be undone. When relationships fail as they do, when they don't meet your expectations, when they don't make you whole like they're supposed to, you'll feel like life is hardly worth the living. Friend, your family is bearing the weight of your meaning and joy, then your family is actually your Lord, don't you see? But what if Jesus was your Savior and your King, and you served Him first and foremost? Well, then you can lead your family to the same place. You can model for them true service to the Lord. You can love them without using them to bring you wholeness. And look, the le- this lesson for Christ applies to all kinds of things. Whatever is de- delaying your obedience to Him, your service to Him, your ministry to Him, your devotion to Him, your telling others of Him, whatever it is, no matter how reasonable and how logical it might be, is your true Lord in that moment. I know I should serve and obey him, we say, but first I must. Have you done that? What would you put there? What would you put there right now? First I must get married. First I must get a house. First I must get the job I want. First I must get my kid to college. First I must get the promotion I've been working so hard for. First I need my schedule to slow down. First I must get this or that done. First I must get the raise I want. First I must retire. First I must. First I must. First I must. These are simply excuses to obedience. And Christ is saying, let the dead take care of that. Let the dead worry about that. Let those who are not in the kingdom worry about non-kingdom things. Do you see the urgency in Christ's command of this man? He says, you go and proclaim the kingdom because there's no time to lose. Well, this guy goes and buries his dad. How many people are going to miss out on hearing the message of the kingdom? How many people are going to go and not go on and not know about the dawn of the new age? How many people are therefore going to continue to live outside of the kingdom and perhaps die outside of it? How many people will stay dead while this man is delaying his obedience? Friend, there is a divine summons coming to us from the king. And it's surprising. Let's get that straight. And it may be startling. I know it is. And it might wreck our sensibilities, but it is, in fact, coming from the king. We put him first. We cast off delayed obedience. I think of when David Platt, in his book, Follow Me, tells of a time he received an invitation to the White House. 
When he opened the letter, he wondered if it was a joke that someone was playing on him, but it turned out it was authentic, okay? And he says this, the invitation was for the following week, and though my schedule was pretty full, I dropped everything I had on that day in order to be at that appointment. I quickly booked flights to Washington, D.C. I made sure that I was there in plenty of time to meet with the president. I was honored to have been invited by him, and I changed everything around to respond to this invitation. Then he continues, if this is my reaction, and I'm guessing yours might be similar, to a world leader of one country, a man who's power, in power for four, maybe eight years, then how much more does an invitation from the everlasting, ever-reigning God of the entire universe in the flesh alter everything in our lives? He asked, do we realize the weight of the one who has invited us to follow him? He is worthy of more than church attendance and casual association. He's worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. So he is. And thus his commands must not be put off, but pursued at once. But the next man, next man comes to Christ like the first one did. And he says, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say well, farewell to those in my home. This again, is this not another reasonable request? <laughs> you know what? It has Old Testament precedence in it too. Did you know that? Elijah called Elisha and Elisha asked, can I go first kiss my father and mother? Elijah acquiesced. He let him do that. Now this man asked the same thing in the tradition of Elisha. And what does Jesus say? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, he is warning against what this man wants to do before he follows Christ. I think of when I was in the military and I was deployed to Iraq, I was able to say goodbye <laughs> to my wife and daughter before I left. Can you imagine if right before, and when I went, it was the height of the Iraq war, if right before I left, the military came out with the edict and they said, no deployed person is allowed to say goodbye to their family before they leave. Can you imagine the uproar? I, I know I'd be upset. If that happened, and rightly so, right? But Jesus tells this man essentially that. He says, you don't need to go say goodbye. Just follow me. Now, what does that mean? This is what Daryl Box says in his commentary. He says, Jesus' reply is really a warning because he sees danger in the request. One may follow him initially, only to long for the old life later. If one is going to follow Jesus, one needs to keep following him and not look back. You see the picture that Jesus is painting, right? It's pretty clear. If you're plowing a field, how straight will your lines be if you're looking that way? How straight? You ever been mowing your lawn and you get distracted by something? Has that happened to you? And you mess all your lines up? No, just me? You are just pros? What, what if you're driving a ride-on lawnmower, but you didn't look where you were going, you only looked backward the whole time? What would happen? Jesus is telling us that we must continue to look forward at him. If we're busy careening our necks, looking back at the past or looking at what we left behind, we'll end up in a ditch. We'll end up in rocky ground. Jesus, once more, is warning against these divided allegiances, these split oaths. If his call is one of reckless abandon and total commitment, we will leave the former things behind. But if we keep looking back and longing for them, how effective will we be for the kingdom? Double-minded discipleship, says Jesus, is worthless. We must look 
where you are directing the plow. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you are to look at him, not other things which you think will bring you fullness. Robert Caris says this, following him is not a task which is added to others like working a second job. It's everything. It's a solemn commitment which forces the disciple to be to reorder all other duties. Or consider this. What if the man goes home, say Jesus says it's fine. Man goes home, says goodbye. It's so hard. And his surroundings are so comfortable and familiar. What could happen? You know, he might decide, you know what? I'm just going to stay here after all. The same with the second man, right? What if in his delay, while he's away burying his father, he decides, you know what? I like it here. I'm not going to go and follow Jesus or preach the kingdom. And what if, my friend, you, in your delayed obedience, you never take that step at all because you find that you quite like where you are? What if we delay for so long that we never actually get around to following Christ the way he calls for? What if you spend so much time thinking about things of earth that you fall off onto the rocky ground? I wonder, is there something in your life that you're holding on to that is standing in your way of following Christ the way you know you ought? I wonder if there's a sin that you can't seem to let go. And the reason you can't let go is because you won't cut it off. You won't sever it. You're toying with it. You're delaying its killing. I wonder if you're still looking back at something from your life in the world and that has put you on rocky ground. I wonder if you're prioritizing something else whether it be family, possessions, job, hobbies, or other things, and that thing, that thing, and your affection to it is standing in the way of your following Jesus. I wonder if you're delaying obedience to Christ because you think his kingdom can wait. All of these examples in this story show us that we cannot come to Jesus and try to limit his place in our lives. Is that not, that's clear, isn't it? You didn't need me to tell you that. One cannot call Jesus Lord, like the man does in verse 59, and then impose limits on his lordship. The trouble is, of course, that we come to Jesus, but we're full of but-ifs and if-onlys. We know what he calls for. His word is right here. We know he calls for preeminence in our lives and total commitments, but we go to him and we say, I will follow you if only. We say, I will give you myself, but if. We say, I will obey you, but first. Do you see that such things mean we have gone all the way to the border, but we haven't taken the step into the kingdom of Christ? Don't you see that you can't have Jesus as Savior if you don't have him as king? Whatever you're letting rule you as king, that is where you're trusting for salvation, to be your Savior. 
Jesus will have none of this save me but don't rule me business that we've concocted. Whatever is your king will be our savior, and Jesus is the only one who could truly be both. He's the only one that could save and rule us in the way that gives real life and meaning and purpose. He's the only one who can give you a whole new life and a whole new kingdom, but he will not coexist with your old life. You must crucify it. Then you can follow him truly. I told you we'd come back to that story from the introduction, didn't I? Where we left off, toughest man that Nick Ripkin had ever known had grabbed Nick by the shoulders and he asked him how God can ask him to put his wife and kids at risk. I asked you, what you would say. And I wonder if your answer is different now than it was then. But I'll tell you what Nick said. Nick said this. He said, I personally cannot answer your question. But I would ask you another question that I've had to ask myself. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your wife and your children? Listen to what Nick writes. He says, He was undoubtedly the toughest man I ever met. He began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me. He buried his face in my shoulder and wept. When he finally stopped, he stepped back, wiped away his tears. He seemed angry at himself for this display of emotion. Then he looked at me in the eyes again, nodded, and declared, Jesus is worth it. He is worth my life, my wife's life, and he is worth the lives of my children. I have got to get them involved in what God is doing with me. With that, the toughest man I ever met said goodbye. He turned and walked out of the room. Here's our answer, yes? Everything you've heard today has been hard to hear because Jesus' demands sound radical to our comfortable American ears. We've been told for over a century that Jesus wants you to just accept him and he wants you to just go to heaven when you die. And it's fine if you want to live however you want to live. We've been sold sugary Kool-Aid and half-baked placebos that have filled our churches but haven't transformed our hearts. We've created well-behaved and moral pagans who believe they're Christians by minimizing the magnitude of what it means to follow the king of the universe. And so we hear things like Jesus calls for total commitment. Let the dead bury the dead. Put Jesus before your career and your aspirations and your family. And if it costs you everything, well, that's what Jesus calls for us to do. And that makes us uncomfortable. We ask, why should I? And the answer is there from the toughest man Nick Ripkin ever met when asked if he was willing to risk his family because Jesus is worth it. That's the answer to the uncomfortable calls for radical obedience and total commitment and utter surrender to him. He is worth it. Is he worth it to you? Did he not set his face like a flint to go to be lifted up in Jerusalem? And what did his lifting up entail? A gruesome death on a Roman cross as the enemy of the state. He said, I must do this. Because he knew you could not be reconciled to God if he didn't. Because he knew you couldn't be adopted by God if he didn't. Because he knew you would be lost in your sins and dead if he didn't. 
Because he knew you would suffer an eternal hell that you earned from your rebellion if he didn't. Because, well, he loved you at your most unlovable. He thought you were worth it. He thought a shameful death was worth getting to you. For the joy set before him, the creator of the universe endured a cross so that you can live. Don't you see? He did it, not so that you could do all these things to get saved, but so that you could see his beauty and his gospel and be moved in heart and be saved by his deeds, not yours. But then when you see all that he did, you'll think him worth everything he says here and every place where his words challenge us. Some of you, some of you might be outside of the kingdom because you have gone all the way to the border and not taken a step into the kingdom of Christ and into submission to him as king and thus savior. Submit to him today. Wait no longer. You're not promised tomorrow. Some of you are in the kingdom, but you're holding tightly on to other things. Some of you won't let go of sins. Some of you are delaying obedience. Some of you are so fully devoted to your possessions and your reputation and your family and your business and your pleasure and your life that you are giving Christ what's left over. Today's the day to submit to him anew and to give him the place of preeminence where he belongs.